0: with you, I invite you to open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking this morning at verses 13 to 20. If you haven't been to Wallace in a little while, we started this series from this uh, one of Paul's very first epistles, 1 Thessalonians. He planted a church there, his first missionary journey, and he had to write a letter to the folks, and we're looking at this. So our text, beloved, is 1 Thessalonians two thirteen to 20. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers for you are our glory and joy we have a can opener in our kitchen i can't seem to work it's not like the old school kind where you know you press into the metal and you turn and turn and turn and the lid pops up eventually this kind you sort of put on top or the See, I don't know how it works, and I'm constantly calling from my wife, "Help, help! And if Janice isn't there, I starve." At Wallace, we believe the word of God is powerful to open human hearts. That raises the question, how does it work? And this text Helps us answer that question. Paul begins, did you notice, expressing his gratitude to God for the way the people in Thessalonica received his preaching. He and his friends came preaching and they opened up the Old Testament and showed there that the Christ of God had to suffer and be mistreated and would be raised from the dead. And then they told about the events in Jerusalem some 20 years earlier and something supernatural happened in the hearts of these people. They believed that Jesus was the Christ the Scripture pointed to. They didn't receive Paul's word as human opinion, slick advertising, something written on the opinion page of the local newspaper, a fairy tale, novel, fiction. No. He tells us that their salvation is the direct product of the working of the word of God. We, we theologians have all these fancy words you know that we throw around. And here's one of my favorites. The word preached was efficacious to bring about faith in their hearts. What a great word, efficacious. It did the work God wanted it to do. And perhaps Paul is echoing a verse I put in your sermon outline for you, a verse from Isaiah 55:11 when. Paul says, "The word of God is at work in you to perform its work." Maybe he's echoing this verse from Isaiah 55:11. "So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth," obviously God speaking. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Do you see what happens when God speaks with a purpose? That purpose actually is fulfilled. The word of God is powerful. So let's ask this question about this text. Based on this text, exactly how does the word of God work? There's a lot of ways you could answer that question. Just sort of sticking to what Paul has written here. How does the word of God work? And I want to show you that the passage shows you that the word of God works in at least three ways. What it performs, it provokes the proud, it predicts hostility, and it produces treasures of grace. Three things. Number one, and this will be the longest point. What work does the word of God perform? It provokes the proud Look again at verse 14 Paul says but you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea push pause He is calling attention to the believers in Thessalonica that their experience mirrors the experience of the first Christians in Jerusalem who faced fierce hostility from their own countrymen the Jews You know, the persecution is so severe that we're told in the book of Acts that most of the Christians were scattered from their homeland. This actually creates ready-made evangelists. God is using that persecution to get the gospel to spread to various places. And Paul is saying, Thessalonians, you're in the same pattern of the very first Christians who experienced this persecution. He writes, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Sadly, tragically, everywhere Paul preaches, the first line of opposition is from his own countrymen, the Jews. Not every single Jew oftentimes led by the Jewish leaders. Now, you may consider yourself Jewish, and you may find this highly offensive. May I assure you, Paul is not anti-Semitic. He himself is a Jew. He loves his heritage. He actually writes in Romans that for the sake of these countrymen who are persecuting the church, he wished he could go to hell. That's what he writes, Romans 9, 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing inc- anguish in my heart. As he looks around the Mediterranean basin and where, tr- where the gospel of Jesus Christ is being spread, everywhere apparently there's this wholesale hostility from the Jewish people and an inability to believe and embrace their Savior. It breaks his heart, beloved. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed, condemned to hell, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But he is being honest and forthright about the facts. And the reality is what? Would you have done any differently? Are you or I any better than these folks who in blind misguidedness rejected their Messiah? Would we have done any differently? Not me. But for the grace of God, I would be a persecutor of the church of God. This hostility aimed at Jesus and his followers is actually predicted at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke in his birth narrative. You may remember this verse that when Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple to be presented and dedicated An old man is there. We're told he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. A man of faith. And he sees Mary and Joseph bring Jesus up and the Holy Spirit tells him, that is in fact the promised Messiah. Here is God in the flesh. Here is the Savior of the world. And he takes the baby and he says to Mary, among other things, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Right from the start, Mary and Joseph would know, our son at some point himself will be fiercely opposed and those who follow him likewise. It's predicted right from the start. And does this make any sense at one level? No. Jesus is the most beautiful person In the universe, whoever said he could have done it better, the Lord Jesus embodied for every eye to see truth with grace, tenderness with conviction, power with gentleness, self-sacrifice without failure, weakness without fear, strength without bullying, Sovereignty without injustice, mercy without sentimentalism, anger without bitterness, tears without hopelessness, intensity without burnout, brightness without blinding, sounds without deafening, touch without a punch. Why is anyone upset on the one hand that Jesus came to earth healing the sick? giving legs to the lame, sight to the blind, loosening the chains of those who are demonized, feeding the hungry, raising the dead. Why would anybody care that in unspeakable mercy and compassion, Jesus is setting right what is broken about humanity? What is not to like? There's actually everything to like and nothing to hate, except in yourself Except in yourself, not in Jesus. Disdain for Jesus must depend then on the condition of your heart. Think about two contrasts. The humble, they were drawn inexorably to Jesus. They were intoxicated with His glory. The broken saw wholeness. The sick saw healing. Those in darkness saw Light, those in lies, saw. The truth, the downcast, saw. Hope, the shaken, a refuge. The hungry found satisfaction. Those in change saw freedom. Sinners saw salvation. You see, those with no ability to liberate or help themselves had nothing. They found in Jesus everything. On the other hand, the proud, the self-reliant, were exposed and therefore repelled. They actually possessed too much. So as they met Jesus, they should have been thinking this, my pretentious sense of goodness pales in comparison to his moral beauty. Anyone meeting Jesus should have concluded, I am not pure like he is. I am guilty. So the living word made flesh, Jesus, Emmanuel, does what the written word God does. Convicts us of sin, uncovers pride, condemns self-righteousness, exposes mischief hidden in our hearts. (laughs) Being around Jesus was like being around a really hard worker. Some people love him, some people hate him. Athletes, you had to do wind sprints at the end of practice. And there were always two types, at least. Hustlers and loafers. The hustlers, they ran them hard. They didn't care if coach wasn't looking. Loafers, if coach wasn't looking, they just kind of... But you know, people love those who work hard. They elevate the team. They make everybody better. Our whole effort is prosperous for those who work hard. The loafers, those hustlers make expose them for being what they're not. They're not good for the team or for anybody else. So Jesus manifests a human glory infinitely better than anyone else, and he was hated and hunted down for it because of what he exposed. Think of it this way. The presence and the purpose, excuse me, the presence and the person and the preaching of Jesus created a division. All of that exposed true from false religion. True from false ways of relating to God. The very presence of Jesus, the very person of Jesus, and the preaching of Jesus created division. There's no neutrality around this man. And it worked both at an institutional level and a personal level. Let me explain. Jesus walked into the institutional structures, religious structures of the Jewish people at the time, and basically said, you got it all wrong. He ignored their man-made rules. He showed how they minimized God's laws, and they laid burdens on people that were too heavy to carry. And he exposed them as arrogant, bigoted, and disdaining of the outsider. And he condemned their false trusts. The people with whom he had the most difficulty were people who said, Look, I am okay with God, and here's why. I can show you from my driver's license and my birth certificate that I can trace my lineage to Abraham. That makes me safe with God. And Jesus basically said, that won't even buy you a donkey in the market. What you need is the reality to which circumcision pointed. You need the heart only the Spirit of God can give you. And at that point, you'll begin to see that all the trappings of your mere formalism is worthless in the sight of God. So for that, they killed him. They killed him. I'm saying that Jesus creates a division between true and false religion, both institutionally and personally. So if if you have any integrity, any kind of spiritual or intellectual honesty in the presence of Jesus, you'd begin to ask this am I really what God created me to be? In the presence of Jesus, you begin to wonder, who do I love most, God or myself? In the presence of Jesus, based on His person, His preaching, and His very presence, you have to begin to wonder, am I more committed to my glory or God's glory? You see, Jesus exposed hypocrisy self-love self-righteousness false confidence one of his followers the apostle John wrote a gospel about the life of Jesus and in the very beginning he sets out this point with this verse in chapter 1 of his gospel of the gospel of John the light has shone in the darkness good thing really good thing if you're in darkness and you know you're in darkness what's the first thing you want light The light has shone in the darkness. And what happened? The darkness loved the darkness rather than the light. And all that says is, I'm unwilling to come clean with God and let the light expose my filthiness. Look, if one of you said to me after the service, we got to meet in your office because I have about a hundred things I need to point out that are wrong with you. Do you think I'm looking forward to that meeting? (laughs) Of course not. We naturally resist self-critique you know critique (laughs) so what would move you toward the light what would lead you to divorce your relationship with the darkness with your own self-love what what would understanding the grace of jesus that jesus came as light of the world not to condemn you but to bear the condemnation do you the point of Jesus' life is, no, you can't live the life God required. He will, and he will take the penalty due you on his cross. Only Jesus is the only man in the world who says, bring your filthiness to me. I can handle it. I will cleanse you. I will restore you, renew you, and heal you. That is Jesus. So do you see how this per- perhaps plays out Excuse me, in your daily Bible reading you should expect a couple of things. Number one, you should always find Jesus in whatever passage you're reading. Number two, you should expect to be convicted of your sin. If you're not, keep reading. Find another passage. Read Proverbs you should always expect, on the one hand, to be convicted of your sin, oh my gosh, I'm a lot worse than I thought. That's the power of God. That's the work the Word of God wants to do. And you should realize, I am more loved by Jesus than I had ever dreamt possible. Those two things should mark, as a rule, your daily Bible reading. Now let's apply this to a, a challenging life situation. You have a disagreement with somebody. Somebody has some disparaging things to say about you. And you need to talk. Option A, be defensive. How dare you? Option B, you want the light. You want the truth. You ask questions. Let's talk about it. If you're safe in Jesus, you have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. Sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, I'm sorry to have to criticize you, Mike, but blah, blah, blah. And I, oh, don't worry, I spent time with Jesus this morning. <laughs> There's so much criticism to go around, we probably don't have time to talk about it. <laughs> the point is, loved in Jesus, you can enter into fruitful, non-defensive, non-self-promoting discussions with people about where you might disagree or hard things they might have to say to you. As I end this section, we're looking at how the Word of God works and it provokes the proud. I can't encourage you enough to get the time it takes for that to happen in the Word of God. Sometimes it's like a slow-working medicine. Dose after dose, week after week, let the medicine do its work. Or a slow-release fertilizer. Some of you gardeners know that you can put miracle grow on something and it's this quick shot of fertilizer. Or you can bury something in the ground that's more slow-release. Over time, it releases the nutrients that your plant needs. That's typically the way the Word of God works. Day after day after day, time in it. Let it do its work. Some of you fathers have precious wives who are just run ragged caring for your children and I know you wake up and the first thing on your mind is I got to get off to work I got a lot to do mom probably has very little time with all her responsibilities to sit and be quiet with Jesus find a creative way to make that happen for her sake second thing we're talking about the work the word of God does when God sends out his word it never comes back without doing what he wants it to do It predicts hostility. And here I'm just slipping into uh, chapter 3 and the sermon in two weeks is going to talk a lot more about this so this won't be a real long point but Paul says chapter 3 verse 4 Indeed, when we were with you we kept telling you in advance we were going to suffer affliction and so it came to pass as you know translated, don't be shocked when people embrace the gospel when Paul's preaching this is what happens this is nothing new you yourselves know we were destined for this. If you like to wash your car, you know that right behind your rear wheels on the fender, there's a lot of grime, dirt, grease, and little rocks. When the gospel rubber meets the road, it kicks up this stuff. And Jesus warned his disciples about this. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. John 16, 1 through 4. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They'll do these things because they've not known the Father nor me, but I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. No doubt the apostle Peter heard Jesus say those words, which led him to write in his first gospel, 1 Peter four twelve. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though something strange were happening to you. Predictions of persecution. I guess it's the phrase forewarned is forearmed. That seems to be what's going on here. He wants them to be comforted and prepared. It's like you know, when, when I go to the doctor and I've got to give blood or something the nurse is very kind and she says now in a minute you're going to feel a little prick. It might feel like a bee sting. I'm like, thank you. You're just letting me know what to expect. It's not going to last the rest of the day but just prepare me for it. That's what Paul is doing. Because he says, look, your temptation when it's difficult following Jesus, Satan's going to be right behind you going, why follow a God who inflicts this kind of pain on you? Take the easier path. And when you hear that voice, recognize it as the voice from the pit of hell and look at the path Jesus took to get you to paradise. It was the hard road, the road of suffering, the road of persecution, the road of being unjustly hated. Third point, last point. What are we saying? Paul's overcome with gratitude to God for the way the Thessalonians and the Wallaceites received the word of God. You don't believe it's the word of man. That's why you're in this church. You believe it's the word of God. You have an appetite for the word of God. You demand the word of God. May it always be. And so how does the word of God work? It does at least these three things. Provokes the proud. It predicts hostility. And thirdly, it produces treasures of grace. Verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. You know, anybody who's called Paul, a cold, detached theologian, hasn't ever read this epistle. Here is the warm, overflowing affection of a man for his friends, and this is made necessary by the fact I told you last week, if you read the account of the planning of the church in Acts Paul is whisked out of town in the middle of the night by his friends because of the persecution. He goes on to Berea. They just whisk him out of town and Paul's distractors come in the wake of that and say, see, he doesn't love you. He bailed on you. He didn't stick it out with you. Paul needs to address this. And he assures them of his esteem for them in at least two ways. One, he says, we endeavored more eagerly to come to you, to see you face to face. He's setting the record straight. No, no. I wanted to make my way, but Satan hindered us. I don't know what that means. I don't know how, but it tells me this. Satan loves division in the people of God. He loves to create suspicion because a house divided cannot stand. Best way to make a church ineffective? Get us mad at each other. Right? There's suspicion. Paul says that's not the case. We'll talk more about this in two weeks. And then secondly... He assures them of his love in verse 19. He says, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? You are our glory and joy. By the way, he's speaking, you'd think he either had kids or or he was married. But this is not mushy sentimentalism. Like, I love how I feel when I'm in your presence. That's not what this is. This is Paul somehow seeing with spiritual sight that when he thinks about and looks at the Thessalonian believers, he sees them adorned with the jewels of gospel glory. He somehow sees diamonds, gold, jewels, silver hanging all over their souls and therefore he esteems them because because he sees their supreme value as they belong to Jesus. Now, do you find verse 19 as curious as I do? He says, "Who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation?" Sunday school answer, what's the Sunday school answer? Jesus, and he is, and that would be three marvelous sermons, how Jesus Christ is our joy, our hope, our crown of exaltation. That is not the way he answers. He says, "You are because by virtue of these believers being one with Jesus, there is correspondingly a glory about them that is in Jesus, and that glory will be revealed when Jesus comes again. Right now, it's all quite invisible. Our son Luke, our middle son Luke, developed an interest in photography at a, in high school. He went away to college in Kentucky to get a degree in photojournalism. And by the grace of God, his freshman year, he was offered an internship in Washington, D.C., with the New York Times. He's very interested in politics, so he was a photojournalist for the New York Times in D.C., covering the White House and Capitol Hill. He sat in the presence of people I'll never dream of sitting in the presence of. An amazing internship. When all the streets are closed and the presidential motorcade is screaming down Wisconsin Avenue, he was in one of those cars in the press pool. When the president flew on Air Force One, Luke was in the press pod in the back of Air Force One. An amazing, amazing experience for him. Catapulted, pivotal and catapulting him in his photojournalism career. Well, from time to time, he would get the cat's meow. I suppose any writer or journalist would find that a picture on the front page of the New York Times was, that's, that's killing it. Above the fold, of course. So we're proud parents. We're going to buy those issues, right? So I would get a text from Luke, you know, studying in my office, fronten, that's F-R-O-N-T-N, fronten, Guess what that means? I'm on the front page of the New York Times above the fault. So I would get in my car and go as fast as I could to Starbucks. Hope it's not sold out. Hope it's not sold out. Hope it's not sold out. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. Walk into Starbucks. Go to the newsstand. Get the New York Times. Check the photo credit. And we bring it over to the cashier. <laughs> yeah, just you wait. <laughs> Lay it down kind of look around and say in a voice that wasn't too obnoxious, but so that everyone heard, my son took that picture. My son did that. When Jesus Christ comes in glory and you are revealed as belonging to him at that moment, Our Father will declare for all of creation, my son did that. That sinner saved from death and destruction by my son, my son did that. My son humiliated himself and left his glory with me and went to earth, was treated with contempt, battled, The temptations of sin and the devil gave up his life as a a sacrifice on a hideous cross. Died the death these sinners deserved bore the wrath of my just judgment against them. My son did that for these people. My son rose from the dead to guarantee they will be with me forever. My son ever lives in glory praying for them. Oh, the Father's pleasure in you as the work of His Son. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.7 when he talks about being made alive in Christ and raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that there is a reason for that. Paul Paul writes, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Beloved, you are a trophy of the grace of Jesus. And Jesus will hold up that trophy like a winner of the content, and he will kiss you and love you, and the Father will be saying, My son did that, my son did that. And that will change you forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what your son did for us. May we never lose our sense of all. What we will be is not evident now. We see each other as skin and bones. We see one another's flaws and warts and pimples. But the day is coming when we will be revealed to Jesus in unspeakable glory. Unspeakable glory. Thank you. Praise you. Humble us. Fill us with wonder. For Jesus' sake. Amen.